Thank you, Larry and Gwen. Navy SEAL Team 6 rescued an American hostage yesterday in Nigeria. They put together a precision hostage rescue and carried it out to rescue Philip Walton, an American citizen. In Nigeria is where it took place. Last Monday, uh, Walton was at his home on a farm in the country next door, Niger, and he was with his young daughter and with his wife when some men came up and asked him for money. He gave them $40. They decided that wasn't enough, and so they took him. They kidnapped him and uh, took him hostage. And uh, that's when uh, U.S. diplomats got involved, diplomats, the U.S. Uh, uh, intelligence got involved, and they worked with the governments over there of Niger and uh, Nigeria. The uh, military or the in uh, intelligence units located Walton, and um, the military confirmed it, and Navy SEAL Team 6 was sent in. One soldier said that these guys train all their adult lives for this. They pray for the green light to go ahead and get to participate in this. And they are willing to do that, to lay down their lives in a, an extremely difficult situation uh, for someone they don't know and have never met. They went in to rescue a hostage. Urgency was added to it because it was realized that uh, he was trying to be, or his captors were trying to sell him or trade him to Al-Qaeda or to ISIS in Nigeria. And so they brought it about, they worked harder. They said the odds of rescuing him were about 30% and extremely difficult to execute such a mission. But they pulled it off in just a beautiful way. And uh, he is with the U.S. Uh, State Department now. Uh, they recovered his freedom. Well, that uh, rescue by Navy Team 6, SEAL Team, is a beautiful picture of what we are called to do in the world. As we go into public places and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ with grace and truth. This morning, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Philip Walton was freed as a hostage and recovered to his freedom by a SEAL team that trained for it, received fresh intel on it, knew the enemy, and relied on all of their resources. And as we look to God's word with our mission to rescue hostages from the enemy, we want to be a people that know our enemy. We want to be a people that know the tactics, not only of the enemy, but what God has given us to do. And people that rely on all of our spiritual resources in Christ Jesus. So in this message on civility and cultural engagement from Ephesians 6, we're going to look at the concept of spiritual warfare. 
Satan is the enemy. And God has given us a mission to go into the public places to bring the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to carry on the mission of Jesus Christ, who came and stated in the synagogue after he read Isaiah 61, I am the one that is here to fulfill this, to set the captives free. We want to be a people that are especially informed of the enemy and willing to rely on the resources of God, not just our own. So let's turn to Ephesians 6, if you would. Paul's letter to Ephesus. We've got to be on mission to rescue hostages from the enemy. And the first thing we've got to realize, we see this in verse 12 of chapter 6, is that we've got to be aware that we are engaged in spiritual warfare every day in every way. That is how we live. We are constantly on mission. Christian life is not a playground. As one author said, it is a battleground. Satan is our enemy. And we are engaged with, in, in spiritual warfare, with an enemy that is bent on destroying us. The enemy does not want, to, want us to challenge our culture with God's grace and truth, or even the simplicity of the gospel. So we turn to the most explicit battle text passage in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, you know the, the basic outline of Ephesians, you've got the wealth, all of our riches in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, and then you've got the walk, our walk with Christ, chapters 4 and 5, and then here in 6, toward the end, we have the warfare of the Christian with Satan himself. Everyone who is aligned with Jesus Christ will face severe opposition from Satan and from his fallen angels as we seek to live for Jesus Christ in this world. We are doomed to fail that if we pretend that Satan is not real and that he is not always on the attack. Let me read chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul talks about a, a struggle here. It's a word for combat or for warfare. It's a term that uh, talks about close up, hand-to-hand -hand combat, if you will. It talks about a very real encounter face-to-face -face with Satan and with his minions. And note that our struggle here is spiritual. It's not... Natural, it's supernatural. It's not physical, it's spiritual. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people in this world. Our warfare is spiritual, and it is against the enemy, Satan, and his formidable force of cosmic evil powers. Notice the, the four forces given here. Rulers, 
powers, those that have authority and the freedom to act against the world forces of this darkness, those that are in darkness, those that avoid the light, commonly throughout scripture, a metaphor for evil and wickedness. They hang out there in the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places takes place in the heavenlies and on earth. It takes place for us positionally and practically. But here on earth, we face it every day. And in every way, Satan attacks in every way possible. The devil is the one identified as our enemy. If we go back one verse to verse 11 there, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Satan is a real creature. He's not a figment of some fiction writer's imagination. He is a real creature given to us by God. He was the highest created angel in the order of the cherubim. And though he is created, he is called the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. He is called the ruler of this world by Jesus and by Paul in, in their words through the Holy Spirit. But we must remember this, that he is not God's equal and opposite. He is wise, but he's not omniscient. And he is powerful with all of his evil and wickedness, but he is not omnipotent. And he is busy everywhere through all of his fallen angels and those who follow him, those who are the rulers and authorities and the cosmic forces of darkness. But he is not omnipresent. God is infinite and eternal. Satan is not. He is limited as a creature. What makes Satan's reach so powerful, aside from his pure evil, is that he has so many fallen angels alongside him. And they have spent centuries getting to know the human race, getting to know our strengths and weaknesses, and then each one of us, our own weaknesses and blind spots and areas that we give in to temptation. Satan is strategic. Well, Paul mentioned the schemes of the devil here, and as we consider the nature of Satan as revealed in Scripture, we know from John 10 that he is here to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. And perhaps the word destroy encompasses everything that he does. He wants to destroy the testimony and the witness of every believer. Peter gave us those words that he roars about like an untamed lion seeking to devour Believers who are walking with Jesus. That's his chief role, to destroy people. As God of this age, he has orchestrated a world system that is opposed to Jesus Christ. So that's why when we look at the values and the, that are proclaimed in the media, the things that we see out of Hollywood, the things that we see in our, or hear in our music, 
all of these things are bent against Jesus Christ. It's no surprise because this is part of the world system that is orchestrated by Satan and he is opposed to Christ. And so he's going to do all that he can to orchestrate a world system that is against Christ to immerse us in that he might draw us away from the source of our strength, from the real attraction of the love of our hearts. We're, in, we're, we're immersed in the world system and, and he uh, likes to appeal to us through the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Satan leverages all of these in our own flesh so that we might be drawn away from Christ, so that we might be attracted to the values of this world to the material things of this world, and even to the relationships of this world more than we are to Jesus Christ. Because when he has done that, then he has won the current battle with us. He has drawn us away from the source of our strength. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about him as a, a deceiver. And, and he says, Satan wins even when he's able to deceive us, to distract us from a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ. So every time that our heart becomes attached to something else, every time our mind is consumed with something of this world, then we are beginning to lose our focus on Jesus Christ. And Satan is beginning to get leverage in our life. He and his fallen angels also tempt our flesh in ways that are personal and unique to each one of us. And much of this strategy revolves around fear and pride. He likes to work this spectrum that sometimes get us on both ends of it in the same day. Everything that he is about is trying to destroy our relationship with Jesus Christ. So if we are in control or if we are totally out of control, we are less likely to turn to Christ if we are dealing completely with fear, if we are immersed in that, if we are consumed by it, or if we are arrogant enough to think that we can handle life in our own natural strength. Satan wins. His key method or his scheme is to deceive believers. We through, see throughout scripture that he is a liar, that he is the father of all lies, we see that he is a murderer from the beginning. As I said earlier, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, even if he just distracts us from pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ, he is deceiving us that there are other things better in this world. From the first pages of scripture, we see him attempting to deceive the human race to doubt God's goodness to deceive us into thinking that there is something better out there for us that God is holding back. That's how he tempted Adam and Eve. He deceives us about the truth of God's word. He wants us to believe that it is not true, that it is not eternal, that it is not living and dynamic, that it's just words on paper that are kind of boring if we just let, it, let, let our mind wander. Satan is out to deceive us that we might not take advantage of the resources we have to live a life that is flourishing in Jesus Christ. The abundant life that Jesus talks about in that same passage where he tells us 
that Satan is here to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan cannot, cannot change our salvation status, but he can draw us away from our resources, from our strength in Jesus Christ, from our identity in Christ, so that we act more out of fear or out of pride than we do out of love for those around us. And that makes it hard on us to engage the world with grace and truth, to bring the gospel in a world of chaos and anger and evil and wickedness. We have to realize that there is spiritual warfare. The second thing is that we've got to stay on mission. And our mission in this world is to rescue hostages of the enemy. Our mission in this world is to rescue hostages of the enemy. Jesus told us to go into the world and to make disciples. So what do we do? We do that by sharing the gospel with our lips and with our lives. He didn't tell us just to go to church and be disciples. He didn't tell us just to gather together and to compare our holiness and to avoid the world so that we might be holier than them. Now, he told us to gather, that we might encourage one another to love and good works, so we might commune with him and worship him. But then he wants us to scatter, and as we go, he wants us to be his witnesses, to bring the gospel. You see, we've got to have the mentality of SEAL Team 6, that when we are here, we are gathering for a purpose. We are getting equipped so that we can go out so that we know who the enemy is, so that we know who the hostages are, and so that we can be equipped and ready to rescue them, to set the captives free. That's got to be our mentality, this mission, that we are here to set the hostages of the enemy free. Lips and lives, we've got to live the gospel. As we go, we have to realize that unbelievers are hostages of the enemy. For the unbeliever, those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, Satan seeks to destroy them. He seeks to blind them to the gospel. He seeks to prevent them from understanding and accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. We have to recognize that unbelievers are hostages of the enemy. That helps us have a mentality as we go about our day. And perhaps there are a handful of ideas that help us understand how to engage the culture because we know people are hostages of the enemy. Let me give you a handful of thoughts on that. The first one is that we must remember that we have the gospel to offer people. We have the gospel to offer people. How many times in a given day or a given week do we engage in conversations? And, and granted, some of it's just getting to know people, meeting people, cold, whatever else. But how often do we actually think of the gospel as a resource to give this person. When we have the mentality that they are a hostage of the enemy, 
that Satan may have blinded them to the gospel so that they don't understand and accept it, then we want to keep that resource handy. We want to keep it available to be able to reach people with the gospel. We must not forget that we have the gospel to offer. Secondly, our understanding of, the, of their state should affect how we approach people. We must realize that they are in the clutches of destructive powers that are so sinister and so evil that they may not even realize that. And that's why people don't run up to us and say, I'm in the clutches of Satan. Could you give me the gospel? And so part of our engaging the culture is to be able to challenge them with love, to be able to speak the truth in love, to help them understand that they are sinners. We must remember this more than anything else, that people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. People are the goal. So it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what their politics are. It doesn't matter where they hang out or who they are or what they do or what they look like. People are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy, and they are simply hostages of the enemy. We want to be a people, as we said last week, that look at people as image bearers of God and people that need the gospel. And we want to be willing to bring it. They are people in need of rescue, regardless of what they say or how they annoy us or how their thinking is different from ours. The third thought is that our approach to them should be laced with love, not anger and hate. Laced with love. So as we look at people as image bearers of God, we don't want to just classify them that way, but we want to move toward them in love. One of the reasons that we emphasize relational disciple-making that God has called us to is so that we might move into people's lives, so that we might get to know them and connect with them, to love them in a way that they can experience it and identify that as distinctly different from what the culture has to offer and to open their hearts to the gospel. Our approach to them should be laced with love. The fourth thing is that we must realize that the world engages by a different set of values. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds us of what was our state before we came to Christ and what is the state of everyone in the world is ever born. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient. People around us are born in sin. They are dead in their trespasses. They are deserving of wrath. And so it's unrealistic of us to think that they should follow God's directives with kindness and compassion and civility around us. We cannot expect them to approach discussions in a civil manner as we are called to do. And that just has to be part of our mindset as we go into this culture, as we have this mission to rescue the hostages. 
The fifth thing is we must not do battle the way the world battles. We're not given license by God to demean and dismiss those who disregard us. We are still called to love them. We are still called to move toward them. If we attempt to fight culture wars without love, we may be biblically right, but we will repel people from the gospel. And that's not our calling. If we attempt to change people's opinions and values and even their hearts without the gospel, we might win arguments, but they will continue to remain hostages. Going back to Philip Walton, you know, the full report isn't in. This just happened a little over 24 hours ago. But I doubt that when it, the report comes in, it will discover that SEAL Team 6 found Walton, disarmed the captors, and then began to ask him questions like, who did you vote for? They didn't challenge his morality. They didn't ask him what he was doing living on this side of the world when all normal Americans live on this side of the world or that side of the world. No, they were just on a mission. They had it in mind. This is what we're called to do. We're going to go and we're going to rescue this American citizen because he's a hostage of the enemy. And so that's what the approach needs to be for us. As we think about people around us that are lost in this world, we want to be people that are willing to rescue them. We want to be people that are willing to lay down our lives for them, even if it's embarrassing or we lose social equity or relational equity or whatever it might be. We want to be a people that use the tactics of God and rely on his resources when we come to people because that's what God is calling us to do in a fallen world. And fortunately, he gives us resources. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. Spiritual battles require spiritual resources for full engagement. Our lives must be attractive to those around us. If we claim to have the water of life for those who are thirsty, and we do, then we want to make it abundantly available to them. If we claim to have the bread of life for those who are hungry, and we do, we want to make it abundantly available to all people. If we know the light of the world for whom people search in the darkness, and we do, we want to make him known through the gospel of grace. Thankfully, he gives us spiritual resources. Now, God can do anything. But I would suggest to you that the days of simple logic and simple apologetics to bring someone into the kingdom are, are largely over, especially in a culture of anger and chaos. What we need, what is working now, is what God has always called us to do, and that is to shine your light. Let men see your good works that they may glorify God who is in heaven. Too often we come across as carriers of a banner for name your special interest group and not bearers of the gospel of grace. 
when we attempt to force our views upon people without grace and truth, we come across as hard and heartless, and we push them further into the enemy. One of the greatest deceptions of Satan is that we can fight in our own strength, with our own ideas, our own intellect, our own physical abilities, our own emotional stamina. And that's not possible. The Lord has given us spiritual resources by which to fight an unseen enemy in the world and by which we can engage people with the gospel. Let's look at two of them just quickly in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We don't fight in our own power. We engage those in our culture with the power of Jesus Christ, we come to them in weakness that the power of Christ might be known. And so that means that we've got to stay in union with Christ, that we would be strengthened by him. In verse 11, we have another resource. We're told to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We don't have to understand all the schemes of the devil to stand firm. We don't have to understand all of his methodology in order just to rely on the strength of Jesus Christ. We're not told to take new territory. We're told simply to stand firm against him. And we're given the armor of God in which to do that. And I challenge you to, to read through verses 10 through 18 specifically verses 14 through 18 this week. And, and just dwell on those, the, the truth, the righteousness that we possess. We possess these things theologically, and, and we possess them in our character. The, the, the faith that we possess, the gospel of peace, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. I, I challenge you. To think about those, not strictly as pieces of combat wear, which they are, but to think of them as living and dynamic elements of our life in Christ. And you might ask these questions. How does each one, each element of the armor of God shape your theology and your understanding of God? How does each one shape your character? How has God used that to transform you? How does each one shape your daily walk? as you interact with Jesus Christ on a daily basis? And how does each one keep us in union with Christ so that we experience his power in our lives? Look at them that way. And our, our spiritual resources don't end there. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that we possess every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We have what it takes to live in a world that is orchestrated by Satan. We are told in 2 Peter 1 that by the divine power of Jesus Christ, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. We are equipped. We simply need to rely on Jesus Christ for the strength. And perhaps the greatest promise is in 1 John 4, 4, when it comes to spiritual warfare, that greater is he that is in you, Jesus Christ, than he that is in the world. And so we don't need to face any of this with fear or trepidation because we act out of victory. Jesus Christ defeated and judged Satan on the cross, gives him play here on earth, and uses what Satan does for his glory and for our good. And one day we'll put 
put him away for eternity in judgment. We possess everything we need. Well, Jesus came and said he came to set the captives free. He offers a life that is abundant, a life that flourishes through faith in him. And he has asked us to continue that mission of setting captives free. And we must be on mission by recognizing that people around us are not the enemy, but they are hostages of the enemy. And we want to reach out with grace and truth so that they come to know Jesus Christ through the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you offer us strength and power against an unseen enemy that we are told is powerful, that is evil, that is wicked, that is everything we fear and are annoyed by and don't want to have anything to do with. And yet you have given us the strength and the power and the insight to stand firm 